from meager beginnings as an adolescent ambulance washer in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, to a decade-long legacy of bringing you breaking news before it makes the news. Broadcasting live from the studios of Scared Monkeys Radio Network via C-Band Satellite W3-957, Access Communications Channel 7, and worldwide via digital streaming audio at scaredmonkeysradio.com, it's the Dana Pretzer Show. And now, your host, Dana Pretzer. Okay, welcome everyone. Uh, One of the first uh, stories that I covered when I... uh, brought my show over to Scared Monkeys was the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie. In fact, I covered the uh, the disappearance even before I was on Scared Monkeys Radio in my uh, days of a talk show host even before. And uh, meeting Drew and, and, and Joyce Kessie on the uh, radio, uh, again, just uh, brought back um, my amazement of the strength of families and how they're able to cope with uh, disappearances of loved ones. And when you look at this case, uh, you know, these words come to mind, uh, uh, disappointment, uh, missed opportunities, uh, most recently a uh, press conference, and lots of questions yet to be asked. And I thought I'd bring on uh, Blink from Blink on Crime, our sister blogger, to uh, talk about the Kessie case. She has an updated story on there. Blink, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Data. Good evening. Now, it's... uh, (laughs) You know, Drew, and uh, this is a case that has gone on for um, uh, too long. In fact, January 24th, I believe, is the anniversary of Jennifer's uh, disappearance. And uh, we had planned on bringing Drew on tonight, but um, he's just not able to come on. And and let's talk about that first. We sure will. Um, Mr. Cassie, Drew, and I I feel like I should be interviewing you. I had no idea that you had covered the case that long, so congratulations. Um, I knew that you were close in the case. I just I didn't realize that. Um, Mr. Kessie, the family itself, uh, from the search, uh, the, the last search, which was on the 9th of January, um, that Friday, was, I mean, it was difficult, and it was something that, excuse me, it was the day after you and I had our interview. Was that the 16th? Yes, yeah. Yes, excuse me. Um, so it was somewhat um, of a surprise. And there are a bunch of, you know, internal things that are going on. As you saw, the, um, the police uh, force, the, uh, the um, designees are changing and things along those lines. And also, uh, Mrs. Kessie, Joyce Kessie's father passed away. Uh, unexpected, not unexpectedly, but more quickly than they had anticipated last week. So the family was literally flying back and forth. And between that and the developments uh, between our work and the press conference today, um, you know, they're just exhausted. Sure, yeah. And and Drew is beyond, you know, he's spent. And what he had asked me to do, real quickly, is he, and I'm going to read this to you because he sent it to me, and he apologized for not being on. As you know, this is one of his very favorite places to be. I said, please express our sincere apologies for not coming on and thank everyone who cares about not only Jennifer, but the work that you all do for those who cannot do for themselves, as well as the results and the difference all of you make in our world and in our life today. We are very humbled. We are a very humbled family by both the new police administration actions in Orlando, as well as the monkeys out there who tirelessly work to help people they don't even know. We love you, and you all get it. Love Drew, Joyce, and Logan, Kathy. Mm. And, and you know that it. it I'm this 
crusty old bugger a lot of people will describe me as is uh, uh but it, that tugs at your heartstrings and all you have to do is just spend five minutes on the telephone with drew kessie and joyce kessie and you'll know uh, very quickly uh that there's a family uh full of hurt uh full of uh despair um drew and they i are. talked many times about uh, at, at christmas holidays and birthdays and and all this sort of stuff and again this has been going on for years and years and uh, and the work that he has done now uh, to uh, again to use his loss to to help benefit others and and that's a whole other show in itself but uh, your blog um, and and the work that you and your team do is uh, you know phenomenal and you have some updates on the uh, Kessie investigation and let's get right at that we do and and I, I will say that if it was not for the availability of of Drew and his family and Jennifer's friends we wouldn't have anything to report because they're really, you know, the the folks that spend the time, you know, helping us in the questions and, and in the, you know, investigation that we need to get to to get those answers. So first of all, I would commend them for that. Drew is, you know, the epitome of what I'll call dogged pursuit in finding his daughter. And and the whole family is, but, he, you know, as, as the father figure, he, he shoulders a great deal of that. And having spent hours upon hours with him on this case specifically in the last few weeks as we knew that we were about to publish you know i'm I'm certainly very thankful for that the leads that have been developed one of the things that we took the opportunity to do dana was to dispel some of the misinformation uh, out there which i thought was very important when drew and i um we had met years ago through our mutual you know contacts and advocacy work but we never really had a conversation about Jennifer's case because I didn't really buy into the prevailing theory that detectives seemed to be married to, and that was that she was abducted in the stairwell of her home in the you know between the seven twenty seven forty five time frame, and that never made sense to me because it's just a statistical anomaly. Plus, there were hundreds of landscapers and construction workers, and her building, if if you've not seen pictures of it is completely open right once you get out of her front door it's alfresco the entire it's it's an essential patio and there is a rain shield over the over the stairwell but that's it and it faces a part of the it it faces the rear of, of that particular building which had hundreds of workers in it by about 7 a.m that in in a few other leads that we were able to develop she had an alarm system that had been disarmed in her condo uh there were some reports that haven't been uh accessed through that and i think one of the most important pieces of information that we were able to develop is that her cell phone was removed from power manually at 10:40 p.m. on the night of january 23rd prior to the morning most had thought she went missing right and has this ever come out before? No. No. And, and that's uh, when I read your article and, uh, you know, I had contact with you. I can th- go back, and I was actually listening to some of the old interviews that I've done, and uh, that's a new one, and uh, that's, a, uh, I think, a very important one. It is, and I think that in our you know, work together, what and as I started to say is I said to Drew, I'm not really sure that I can – lend any insight i'll get you know i will gladly devote any resources to jennifer's case i've studied it i know some of the facts but when we take it on you know it's it's we're in the meat of this so we're going to need access we're going to need this that the other thing and he said absolutely i'm not you know 
any potential, I want to find my daughter. Mm-hmm. And I don't care whose theory or how that happens. You know, we're going through our sixth year of hell, so we're certainly open to the possibility. And, and in our conversation today, he said, you know, you're right. We started out with a certain set of preconceived circumstances that we have been thinking about for a long time. And for the first time, some of the things you were able to develop were change my mindset. And to that end, every lead that we are associating, or the strongest leads, Dana, are, are pointing to a coworker or a, uh, a personal situation, uh, a personal um, associate known to Jennifer. And, and why? You know, most people will sit back and say, how do they come up with that? Well, we came up with it because there was a gentleman um, who I withheld his name from the piece. Sure. I know his name. Uh, I verified everything that he told me with uh, other uh, colleagues and, and certainly work files and things along those lines, or, or nobody would have read that. It, it wouldn't have been releasable as, 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 you know, as it was. But a gentleman who worked with both uh, Jennifer and a guy by the name of Johnny Campos, and he told me that on, let me back up a second. When I was interviewing Drew, as I did for weeks, you know, getting the baseline of information and running things down of things that are known, that's really what you have to do when you take on a case like this. You really have to, you, an unscripted, pretend I know nothing, start at the beginning. And to his credit, he was absolutely fine with that. I mean, I have to guess I'm about the 13th person, probably, <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that, ha- that has had to call on him for that. Right. But he was certainly his gracious self and things that we went through. And one of the recounts that he gave me was that um, there was a gentleman at work that had been uh, paying what uh, Jennifer called you know, an unnatural amount of attention to her. And she felt compelled to potentially give him an opportunity to go out and say, look, well, I'm really not interested in you. I don't date coworkers. And he said to her, you know, as dads will, you know, don't, don't put yourself out like that. Take him out to lunch and just and explain the situation. And then that's the best you can do. You know, she was concerned. She had just been promoted about, you know, some a type of work situation that she would make offend somebody. She didn't want that, which to her credit was advisable. And as we developed the gentleman, the witness that came forward and filed a complaint against this gentleman for harassment that he received as his subordinate, I learned that this gentleman, um, on the Friday afternoon that Jennifer was off and on her trip with Rob Allen, he expressed um, you know, activities and, and behavior like a jealous boyfriend you know, demeaning Rob and demeaning Jennifer to his subordinate. And his subordinate said, you know, you're a married guy. Why, like, why, I don't want to be involved in this. Mm-hmm. That was the Friday. On Monday morning, when Jennifer returned to the office, he was in his cubicle, unbeknownst to Johnny Campos and Jennifer, and they had a confrontation that sounded like, you know, as he described it, like he was a jealous boyfriend. Where were you? Who were you with? Jennifer responded, I was with, you know, my boyfriend, and we had a fantastic time. And the exchange I will characterize, because I was, I am loose about it, I know what it was, um, the exchange I will characterize as, I believe that Jennifer did not understand the depth of the feelings of Mr. Campos. Okay. And 
it ended there the next morning uh, this witness came into work Mr. Campos showed up at noon and was very nervous was acting in, in an inappropriate way and the day after that um, he took the witness uh, to uh, off-site was asking questions about you know wh who had an empty apartment the, the entire behavior is bizarre uh, I called Drew as a result and said here you know here's where I am I need to run some things past you uh, does the name Johnny Campos ring a bell and he said well well yeah that's the guy I was I thought I told you that that's the guy that I was telling you about who Jennifer was you know trying to rebuff in a kind way his advances she was uncomfortable and as a matter of fact you know I want to say like two years ago Jen, uh, Joyce and I had a uh, an outing an event at the mall and he came up to Joyce while I was in a conversation with someone else and he said uh, we had had the secret Santa at the office the you know the Christmas before Jennifer disappeared and I purchased this for her and she kept it on her desk I brought it to you because I thought you should have it mm. and he said to me you know why <laughs> and I said because Mr. Campos um, is this gentleman that's in that was a supervisor of somebody who consequently ended up being fired but more importantly Dana his story checks out he was uh, interviewed twice by Orlando police on his own he went to the FBI because he did not feel that Orlando police were taking his case very seriously. He had passed the polygraph, and when he went to the FBI, said he was being harassed uh, by Mr. Campos at work. And the FBI said, if you're being harassed, then what you need to do is file a grievance. Well, he did. The day that he had an impromptu meeting was the day that one of the searches, it was February 19, 2010, took place in an area that he alerted folks to. He was fired the next month. Wow. Oh, you know, I, uh, my, my mind is racing a million miles a minute here, uh, and if you're just tuning in, Blake from Blink on Crime is here, and we're talking about the Jennifer Kessie case. Uh, Drew Kessie was uh, supposed to join us, but he's not able to tonight. Completely understandable. Uh, there's a... Um uh, a new story, a, a new uh, blog on, on Blink's blog at BlinkOnCrime.com. And, of course, you can uh, learn more about Jennifer Kessie at JenniferKessie.com. Okay, let's keep going with the story. Uh, it, 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 I mean, obviously it is um, It's disheartening to hear yeah. that Jennifer's co-workers were not interviewed until almost four and a half years after her disappearance, excuse me, three and a half to four years after her disappearance. Now, if I, I'm going back uh, to the early days and uh, talking to Drew and Joyce and uh, mm -hmm. o o OPD's response to their initial report of Jennifer missing, and in fact, I think you have a quote in your story, uh, let's talk about the police response to the investigation early on. The police response to the investigation early on was, well, if you're referring to the one of the quotes where I'm talking about, you know, your daughter had a fight with her boyfriend and right. she took off, she'll be back. Yep. That was from one of the original detectives in the case, and 
he said that he made the mistake of saying that to Drew while he was in his daughter's condo, and they were in a full panic mode. Yeah. They knew that that was not true. It just it just wasn't. And so they set the tone, I think, for their investigative efforts. These gentlemen, who retired nine months to the day, both of them together, never kept a note on her case. Mm. That is lost time. It's inexcusable, and it is what it is. She's still missing, and, you know... No, nothing is ever going to change that. Every, I think what I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. I think what if I mean Drew and Joyce knew immediately that was not accurate, but I I think that where the Cassies and Drew in particular, you know, had the had the bottom fallout was when the FBI reviewed the case, and that quote is your daughter seemed to have vanished. We don't know how or why, and we really have nothing to go on. Oh, that was just maddening to him. Yeah. Because he really put his faith, he, he pushed for the FBI to, to review the case. I know. And they walked away with that with no, you know, explanation and no resolution. And, you know, we're talking about another 18 months. What, what I want to say as a positive, well, for, what I want to say at the end is I want to talk about just maybe a brief go-through of things that we know, because your audience does know this case very, very well. And right. our goal is to you know, dispel any original misinformation so that we can progress the case. Yep. So I do want to touch a little bit about um, what we learned that is not accurate, maybe that had been put out. Yep, let's do that. Right. Um, but I also want to say that the administration within Orange County Within, within the Orlando Police Department and Chief Rooney, that has changed, has absolutely captivated not just the Kessies, but me in in the way and, and in our you know our team because I believe when they organized the smart team that they did today, I believe there was 19 different resources throughout the state of Florida, whether that was investigative, that was psych. That was medical examiner. Dr. G was there. Um, there were there were various and sundry uh, team members that met today to go over the case. And the burden on uh, uh, Detective Schneider, who is the lead detective in the case now, was simply to present their case in chief and allow that you know think tank, if you will, similar to what we do, to to kind of you know noodle it and get a direction. And I know that jo- Joyce and Drew and Logan walked away from that today feeling like for the first time, the commitments that have been made to them may be met. And, and that was all part of the press conference today, for those that are wondering. Uh, uh, Blink from Blink on Crime is here. We're talking about updates in the Jennifer Kessy case. Uh, a, a big part of this, before we get into the uh, the misconceptions uh, and the uh, what you'd like to correct, is forensics in any sort of investigation. And, and most will wonder, uh, was there any forensics done? Jennifer's car, Jennifer's apartment, uh, Jennifer's work site, uh, whatever. Jennifer's apartment, not to my knowledge, um, there has not. Um, the theory at the time, again, we're going back, hearkening back to the to the original detectives, was that the Cassie family, you know, contaminated the the apartment or the condo, excuse me, because they were there. You know, they went in, they you know, they actually lived there for the first eight months. That was you know, 
headquarters for Jennifer, find Jennifer Cassie. Right. They weren't leaving Orlando without her. They had no idea, of course, that was going to be the case. But um, instead of what any, you know, forensic uh, consultant or forensic team would suggest is that they simply, you know, take samples from people that were known to Jennifer and exclude them out of their analysis, they none of that. Oh. And I've personally spoken to the owner of the condominium currently. There's no sign of that. And there there was no, you know, uh, renovations or things that would make me want to get right back in there. Although this very kind owner said, if that's a necessity, let me know. Okay. I'll make it happen. Her car was processed, um, but I can't tell you to the extent that it was processed because one of the things that we were able to learn is that her car had what's called a, uh, a code or a smart key. And that means that there is a code within that key that if you were to open, say, if you were to use her spare key to open the car, you can open the car, but you could not start the engine. Okay. So we know that she, whoever moved her car absolutely had an original key. There was only two. Drew had one at the home in Bradenton, which he was never asked for. So to date, we don't know how her car was processed because running her, her vehicle identification number, in theory, is supposed to bring up, you know, if, if police request a, a key made, those records are associated with that vehicle identification number, and we're not seeing any of that. Mm-hmm. So the impetus would be on them to say, hey, was her car disabled? Was something done to it that made her, you know, rendered it inoperable, and that's what happened? You know, those are investigative things that are really investigative 101, and we just don't have that answer. We know that there is a partial latent print within the vehicle, and we know that there is some fiber evidence from the trunk, um, but without anything really to compare it to, it's kind of like, Evidence, non-evidence. Yeah. Okay. No, I see what you're saying. Let's get to some of the misconceptions, uh, Blink. We have about five minutes. Sure. And I don't know that they're necessary misconceptions, but they're new information. Jennifer's condominium had had a working intrusion alarm, which is new. Um, What that means is that it, it was not equipped to a monitoring service, but we do know that it was disarmed for her brother Logan to spend the weekend and it was disarmed when he came to the condo on the afternoon of the 23rd. What we don't know is any other reporting that would be interesting and relevant besides that because it was never requested. But it is, it was available at the time. Jennifer's glasses, her eyeglasses, she had very poor vision. They were located in her bathroom but not next to her bed where she normally kept them. Okay. The, the you know again it would seem that she either you know went out or um, went to work in the morning you know the prevailing theory again that's a possibility. Yep. Previously thought to be missing but is not was the brown pocketbook that she used on her trip. Uh, Drew didn't know this but it was returned to them in the duffel bag that she had taken on her trip but was unpacked. It was stuffed in the top of that. So she did not do what us ladies do, and that's, you know, she did it so she could use it as a carry-on, is to put our wallet, you know, our, our phone, our, you know, toiletries, whatever, in that. So that was not missing. Um, there were two uh, workers, only two workers, that whose, you know, 
I've seen the work orders, so I know who they are, um, that had access to Jennifer's condo. Both men were found, they were interviewed, agreed to take polygraph tests by the FBI, and they were cleared. So to date, Jennifer's keys, wallet, iPod, her phone, and briefcase are missing. Uh, Travis Bourguignon's phone, who was the family friend, left his phone in the condo, has never been recovered. Uh, we've already talked about her pings um, yep. and her phone being removed from power by 10.40 p.m., which to me, Dana, says it all. The girl yep. was attached to that cell phone. Yep. She never, I mean, think about it. Her her vehicle is discovered with, with the car charger not plugged in but wrapped around the gear shift. There was no, her phone charger that went through the AC unit of her home was not found. Hmm. And so she'd been on it all day, at least until 6.15, your standard LG phone. There was got to be a time, and she was on it the whole way home. That phone needed a charge. So it's relevant in that it was removed from power. Okay. There were a pair of snakeskin tan pumps that were missing that they know of. Her iPod, her wallet, her briefcase, Travis's phone. Um, and there were everything, I guess, everything about the, the scene was also commensurate with the fact that it could have been left that way when she left for vacation and just came into the condominium, set her things down, sure, yep. and perhaps took a shower because there was water droplets within the shower, which made everybody think, oh, she got ready and left. Okay. You know... Uh and we're just about out of time, Blink, and I appreciate you coming on, Blink, from uh, Blink on Crime. And, again, you can learn more about Jennifer Kessie by going to Jennifer Kessie. Uh, Kessie is K-E-S-S-E dot com. Um, and now, um, all these years later, uh, January 24th is is coming up, and, and you've been speaking with Drew and, and Joyce. And um, it looks like there's a... Uh, uh, what's the term I can use here? A renewed effort I- into the investigation. But uh, one last question, Blink. Uh, one of the big things when this first this story first came out, and we talked about it here, uh, in fact, uh, posted it, and, and um, was the grainy video. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. I uh, do. What, to, what, what about that? What, what's been said about that lately? Well, the individual clearly had Jennifer's original keys. Yeah. So... There's no way of getting around the fact that that individual is attached to the car and or the case in some way. It is my personal opinion, based on the the gate, based on the um, demeanor of the suspect, and he is a suspect, by the way, yep. um, and the fact that there were three cameras at Huntington on the green only one of them was able to pick up the individual. He does not rush. He does not hide his appearance. He spends time in the car. It's my personal opinion that this individual did not know that he was moving the car of a missing person based on the timing that he did it because nobody knew she was missing yet Right. at that time. And this is just not behavior indicative of somebody that's missing the car uh, or, excuse me, that's that's you know, planting the car less than, you know, a mile and a half from Jennifer's residence. I I personally believe 
this was an associate of the person responsible for what happened to to Jennifer, who was simply said, "Hey, can you go do this for me?" Yeah. And That's... then, once it becomes known, you know, he's not. I'm I'm certain he's not an idiot, and probably is thinking, "Oh my God." I'm now tied to what is likely a homicide investigation. He could have a, you know, a naturalization status. In fact, it's my opinion that at least one person that has knowledge of Jennifer's um, disappearance is no longer in the United States, and I, I'm pretty comfortable saying that's a fact. Okay. Well, I tell you, you know, this is a case that's very close to me and close to a lot of folks in my audience and, and you. And, and uh, I, I know the uh, the Kessie family appreciates what you've done. Uh, Blink from BlinkOnCrime.com. Uh, follow her website to learn more about the case. Thanks, Blink, and we'll be in touch. Thank you. Appreciate okay. it. Take care, Dana. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, that's uh, Blink from Blink on Crime. And we're going to take a break. And we'll kind of come back and talk about the case of uh, Tim McLean. You remember Tim McLean was the young man riding on the Greyhound bus in uh, Manitoba, Canada, uh, who was savagely murdered. Uh, the person responsible for his death was held not criminally responsible. And um, uh, it, it's a very bizarre, uh, that's my term, uh, set of circumstances that has the family of Tim McLean uh, very concerned about the laws in Canada. And in fact, Tim McLean's mother will be here to talk about Tim's law in just a minute. You are listening to Scared Monkeys Radio. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back. This is Scared Monkeys Radio. Uh, Tim McLean was a young man that uh, was murdered on a Greyhound bus near Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. We covered the story many times here on the program. He was minding his own business when he was savagely killed for no other reason than being in the right place at the wrong time. The family of Tim McLean is stepping up its lobbying efforts to enact legislation for victims' protection. They refer to it as Tim's Law. Most of us never knew Tim McLean. Most of us never will. But we know someone like Tim. We cannot prevent every tragedy, but we can lessen the chance of a repeat offender. And uh, we want to help lobby for Tim uh, McLean and Tim's Law. And there's a link in the show notes, uh, timslaw.ca, and we have Tim uh, McLean's uh, uh, mom on the phone with us now. Hi, Carol. Hi. Nice to have you on the program. Nice to uh, nice to be on the radio. I'm trying to keep this issue in the forefront, and that's not easy to do without the uh, media's help. Very important. And uh, I shared with you in my email uh, that I heard, uh, although I didn't know it was you at the time, and I was a little embarrassed with that, <laughs> but I, I, I heard uh, you on Roy Green's uh, national program in Canada, and, and we're a little different up here. Uh, when it comes to these types of programs, there's a couple of national shows. Uh, Mike McIntyre, who is a, a national host, will be on right after you actually tonight, and uh, and others. But we don't seem to get the the media as uh, cases like this in the United States do. But we'll try and uh, get what we can and get the word out. Uh, let's talk first of all before we get to Tim's law and this whole crazy, uh, not criminally responsible issue in Canada. Let's talk about Tim a little bit. Okay. Um, Timothy was probably the most alive person I've ever known in my life. He, he virtually radiated uh, energy and life and love. And um, he never worried about anything. He lived his life as a free spirit. He, you know, um, very open and friendly and outgoing and uh, adventurous and 
often terrifying for me because he was also reckless and careless and uh-huh. and uh he was just a free spirit and i miss him unbelievably i still find it hard to get my head around this having happened it's it's uh, the ultimate nightmare for any parent uh you know the old saying uh, children are supposed to bury their parents parents aren't supposed to bury their children uh, but right. but in a case like this you know traffic accidents are one thing illness is another thing but this is a a savage murder for lack of a better term and uh, without uh you know and i'll throw this out right now to the tv audience and the uh and the radio audience there may be some uh, some graphic um comments coming out here in the next little bit but we can't tell the story uh, without some of those comments but uh, let's talk about tim and uh why was he on that greyhound bus well, for the previous two summers, and then and then the summer of '08, uh, he traveled west with the um, exhibition, the fair. Sure. Um, he liked to go do the shows in uh, Saskatchewan and Alberta, and he had been as far west as um, as BC, but he didn't want to continue that far that year he was he was on his way back after having done the uh, Calgary and Edmonton shows fairs I guess it's Calgary Stampede and uh, Edmonton's Klondike days right and um, he wanted to get home to attend to his iguana and uh, um, oh what else oh he had a traffic ticket he wanted to take care of okay he never made it home to take care of either one. No, and uh, if if you could, and I know you've told the story many times, um, and uh, I do understand if you're a little bit uh, reluctant. Uh, however, let's talk about what happened that night on the bus. Well, he was uh, from from the testimony and from what I've un- what my understanding is is they had the bus had stopped about an hour before for a smoke break. And at that time, I guess, Vince Lee, who had boarded the bus maybe a half hour prior to that yet, um, was getting off and on the bus with the other passengers, and Timothy kind of smiled in acknowledgement, just sort of like, hey, how's it going, or whatever. Sure. And um, there had been no other conversation or anything between the two. Timothy proceeded back to his seat, where he was at the back of the bus, um, across from the washrooms and Vince Lee who had been sitting at the front of the bus uh, at that time got up and moved to the back of the bus and sat beside my son who was now um, sleeping had his headphones on listening to his music and he was sleeping and um, about 45 minutes from home Vince Lee began his attack on my son unprovoked right. um, I, I believe there were two to three initial um, uh, wounds to Timothy's neck and upper chest, and um, from there, I guess the initial, the first, the first uh, wound or strike had Timothy up and out of his seat and jumping over Vince Lee and put himself in the aisleway. Right. At which time. People were understanding that there was an attack or a kerfuffle going on. They didn't know exactly what, and people were starting to exit the bus. Um, it was all 
over for my son fairly quickly. The first few injuries had him uh, incapacitated. And then Vinsley proceeded to uh, decapitate him. And um, when his five-hour rampage was over, he had completely desecrated my son's body and had consumed parts of him, uh, cannibalized his eyes and at least a third of his heart muscle as well as other tissue and my son's internal organs and other body parts were found in four to six different locations in baggies in the bus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Timothy's ear, nose, and tongue were in a baggie in Mr. Lee's pocket when he was apprehended. Well. Um, I can't understand how the RCMP, I don't understand the thought pattern behind not doing anything at all to stop this attack, to stand by for five hours and watch. Right. Um, I, I don't, I will never understand that. There will never be a satisfying answer to that. No. No. No, I understand. Um, uh, we're, we're talking about Tim's Law, and I encourage you all on the uh, website, whether you're listening live or watching on television or picking up the podcast to go to timslaw.ca and uh, we, we want to talk now uh, Carol uh, is here Tim McLean's mom and we want to talk a little bit about this not criminally responsible Vince Lee was found not criminally responsible uh, and was uh, placed in a psychiatric facility uh, I'll give it to you now you take it from there now what's going on with Vince Lee Well, when he was initially put into, uh, it's a a mental hospital, uh, he had three people attending him at at all times. He was in the second second year, I believe, he was granted two 15-minute passes to be outdoors per day. 15 minutes to, over the year, increase to an hour twice a day. Then last year, which was our third review board hearing they increased it to up to 12 hours a day and they de- decreased his security so now it was going to be Vince Lee two other inmates and one individual to walk with them on unfenced poorly lit grounds this is just yeah. it, it takes your breath away Carol and and um, we on this program are all about consequences. Uh, you, you know, you, you, the old saying, you do the crime, you do the time, and I'm not trying to be flippant about that. Uh, the conservative government in Canada has come forward with tough crime legislation uh, that they have uh, brought forward, but uh, this whole issue of being not criminally responsible, basically uh, Vince Lee could um, get out and uh, not ever be held criminally responsible or, or, or be punished criminally uh, for what he did to your son. Let's talk. So it's not a question of he could get out. It if is a question will. of he absolutely will. He but will. the only question is when. Yeah. And I believe the only reason he hasn't been let out already is because we've been doing everything we can to keep it as public as we can. Um, there, are, there are many, many cases of NCR. I've had a lot of different family members contact me 
family members of other NCR victims because not criminally responsible, which is NCR, also stands for no criminal record, and that's absurd. For the individuals responsible for these types of heinous crimes not to have a record because when they when they are deemed not criminally responsible they're they're not charged with a crime but when there's no criminal record involved that opens up a lot of um opportunities for them in the future that i don't believe that 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 should ever be there for them absolutely um for example they could technically be working with the elderly or with children in the future because there's no criminal record to say he can't. That's right. Um, another individual in BC whose uh, mother, stepmother was murdered by her own son um, served two years in an institution after he was deemed NCR. Two or three years, maximum three, was, was released and then sued in civil court for half of his mother's estate and he was awarded it. Yeah, jeez. Which is bizarre, but again, without the criminal record, free to do that. Um, The case of of, uh, the cardiologist in Quebec, which was just in the news last week because he was up for his review board hearing, brutally murdered his own two children two years ago. Three and five years old, I think they were. Yes. And um, uh, now he wants to be let loose free because... He certainly doesn't feel he's any risk to anybody any longer. He's no longer taking medication, and he would like to practice medicine again and um, and and have a relationship again and possibly more children. This is a man who brutally f- stabbed his own children 48, 47 or 48 times only two years ago, and he's not medicated because he doesn't feel he needs it. Well... That seems to be the trend with all of these individuals. I think there's a very big difference, and, and it needs to be clear, between an intellectually challenged person and a mentally ill person. Mentally ill people that are not in control of their own actions need to be controlled, yes. managed. When they've proven themselves to, to be this violent, I mean, we don't know, and any psychiatrist will tell you that they cannot predict the future behavior of any individual. But we already know what he's capable of. We can go by his past behavior. Yes. It's it's common knowledge that individuals with schizophrenia, and I'll get back to that in a minute, but it's common knowledge that individuals with schizophrenia, upon starting to feel well, stop taking their meds because they don't feel they need them. Yep. I would like to know, and I would like this to be made very clear to me, when... The issue of responsibility comes into play because in Canada, each individual is the only person responsible for their own mental and physical well-being. Nobody else can force them into treatment or force Medicaid. But Vince Lee was diagnosed with this with this illness. He chose not to take his medications. He walked away from treatment. And then he made he did this crime, and I'm being told he's not responsible. Well, when does responsibility c- kick in then? Absolutely. Well, you know, you can't be the only person responsible f- for yourself and then do something like this, and then not be responsible. You can't have it both ways. No, you certainly can't. 
Well, apparently you can in Canada, and that's what needs to change. Absolutely. What has and it will not change, and this is what needs to be made very clear to all your listeners and anybody else. The government cannot, will not, should not do anything without a paper trail, without knowing that this is what the people want. I certainly can't change anything on my own. Neither can any of the other victims of NCR. But everybody who is like-minded needs to contact their local elected official and say something needs to be done. At the very least, we need to have a review of NCR. The entire issue and the laws governing NCR need to be addressed, need to be looked at, because currently what we're doing with these types of killers is not adequate. And it puts all the rest of the public in danger. Absolutely. They are... I want everybody to be aware of this, too. These types of killers for crimes this heinous, but not as public, maybe. See, this this made national, worldwide headlines as well because it was done in a very public place in front of multi, multiple witnesses. But these types of killings take place all the time and are kept very quiet in just, just local news. There have been many, many instances of NCR in this province since Timothy's. And I've attended some of those trials. It's still happening, but they're done much more quietly and much more quickly. The last trial I was at regarding an NCR killer was over and done in about an hour. Jeez. Because when they go into court, there's nobody opposing anything. It's an agreed statement of fact. Exactly. Done. Done deal. Job's finished, and they're all slapping themselves in the back for another fine day. And the rest of us... Are, are shaking in our boots thinking, oh my God, they're going to let this person go. Carol, tell the folks how they can find out more information. Of course, we have the website, timslaw.ca. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, go to the website, um, contact your local, elect- local elected official and uh, express your views, your concerns. Um, I think it's extremely important. Why wouldn't I? How could I think otherwise? Right. Um, Vince Lee is a very dangerous person, and individuals like Vince Lee are very dangerous people. And I don't care if the psychiatric community wants to study him forever to see what makes his mind work or not work or, or whatever, but do it behind locked bars for the rest of his days. And let's protect the folks out there. And let's, let's protect everybody. Let's protect the next person sleeping on a bus just trying to get home. Absolutely. And we, can't, we can't change what's already happened. People talk to me about forgiveness all the time. Now, to me, it's a very personal thing, and it's, it's different for each individual. But to me, forgiveness is simply understanding that you can't change what's already occurred. What I couldn't forgive is if I did nothing, and this just kept happening. You're right. I need to I need to do everything that I can to raise as much awareness as I can. I would like to we were in the line to uh, flood last spring. Right. Our home was, we we were slated to lose our home. It was an extremely stressful summer and fall. I didn't have time or energy or anything else to do the fundraising that I had planned or wanted to be doing. I want to attend the victim symposium in Ottawa in April again and meet with the uh, federal ombudsman for victims. I speak with her. She's meeting with the federal justice minister, and we are starting to make some rumblings. They are starting to hear us there, and I'd like to get there again in April for that. um, There's actually two going on at the same time. 
And, uh, yeah, I'm going to see what what I can do in the meantime to raise the money to get there. And and we certainly here, uh, Carol, will keep this uh, issue alive and well in the media, and we hope that other Canadian media organizations and even American media organizations, because uh, they get the word out too, uh, get the word out and get the people uh, rolling, because uh, the old story, we the people, the government is elected by the people, and they need to listen to the people, and that's well, so that's, important. that's been my stance from the very get-go, and I want to be very, very clear. This isn't about vengeance, not in any way. No. Um, I don't really believe in that, but I do believe in a better way. I think that what Timothy's, I think Timothy's death was this vicious, horrific, and public to raise, to, to bring attention to the issue that this is, this is the way things are and, and they need to change. I agree. Thank you, Carol. And I'll You're stay, welcome. I will stay in touch and we'll do this again sometime. That sounds great. Thanks, Dina. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Tim McLean butchered on a Greyhound bus. His bodily organs uh, eaten uh, by Vince Lee. Uh, Vince Lee being held not criminally responsible. Uh, The public needs to be protected from those uh, like Vince Lee and Vince Lee. And it's time that the government sit down and, and look at that piece of legislation. And it's up to you, the folks, to do get a hold of your government representative and say it's time that we do something and let's try and protect those out there. Uh, and uh, we'll have uh, Carol back on. Again, make sure and go to timslaw.ca. Uh, another person who has uh, covered this case uh, for quite some time, uh, Mike McIntyre, he's a national uh, crime reporter up here in Canada and has a syndicated radio show, uh, Crime and Punishment, uh, I thought I'd bring him on to get his uh, thoughts. We recorded this a little earlier today um, uh, about this. We can understand where the families are coming from. It is so important. Whether or not something will happen uh, is up in the air. We all know how governments act. But we certainly, again, uh, we elect the governments. It's time that the governments listen to the people. Uh, here's Mike McIntyre. Okay, we're back. Uh, you all know Mike McIntyre, syndicated radio host. Uh, he's a uh, true crime reporter for the Winnipeg Free Press. His new book, Journey for Justice, is out there. Uh, he's a good friend of the program and uh, I of his. Uh, I was just on as a guest. And I understand he's uh, now going to be the uh, PR representative for the uh, cruise ship captain from uh, Italy. Uh, I don't know about that, Mike. I'm not sure that's a good career move for you. Uh, the, the captain of our cruise ship doesn't decide to do a flyby, as they call it, and let the head chef wave to his family on any given island. Oh. Uh, just an unbelievable tale, uh, and of course, tragic tale, but the explanation that's been provided as to why this happened is just unreal. Yeah, just share with my audience what he's saying now. Well, so first of all, the captain, after initially claiming that no, he never abandoned the ship, that he waited till everybody was off, uh, of course, that proved to be bogus because, um, uh, well, he was saying that, they were still, of course, rescuing survivors off the ship, and he was on dry land. Then that now legendary video and our audio tape surfaced of the Coast Guard demanding the cowardly captain return to his ship. Uh, I mean, that is just an unbelievable piece of audio. Well, now, the latest is that he's actually saying, okay, you got me. Yes, I did abandon uh, the ship. 
However, I, I have an explanation, and he says, um, I tripped and fell into the lifeboat, <laughs> oh. uh, basically saying I, I had no choice. I didn't mean to leave the ship, but I fell into this lifeboat, which sort of carried me to safety. Uh, but it wasn't on purpose, I promise. Oh, you uh, know, this guy is quite the piece of work, and um, uh, he's facing, uh, I think, some, some serious justice. He's uh, sitting in custody, of course, facing all kinds of charges, and, and this is just an incredible tale. As he should, as he should. As you know, Mike, I just finished interviewing uh, Tim McLean's mom. We're, we're talking about Tim's law and, of course, the uh, what we call up here in Canada when someone's not criminally responsible. I'd like to get your take. Obviously, uh, this case, you and I have talked about it before, happened in your neck of the woods in, in Manitoba. There's many cases in Canada uh, regarding uh, those that have been found not criminally responsible. First of all, your take on Tim's law. Well, uh, it's an interesting proposition and not a surprising one given the position of, of the McLean family, and I, I can't fault them one bit no. for feeling how they do. Uh, I think if all of us uh, you know, were to think for a moment, geez, if, if we were in their position, how would we react? Uh, I, nobody can blame them for having their opinion. Um, I guess, you know, <laughs> legally it's an interesting question because... Uh, the definition uh, of not criminally responsible right now in our criminal code in Canada says that that you cannot form, because of mental illness, you cannot form the necessary intent needed to commit a crime. Therefore, uh, you can't appreciate that your actions, you essentially don't know right from wrong, you're sick, you're not a criminal, you're, you need medical help, not prison. And that's how our system works right now. And of course, we don't send these individuals to prison. We send the Vince Lees of the world uh, to a hospital. Now, whether or not they ever get out, I guess, is entirely dependent on how serious the mental illness they're suffering from. And we all know with the Vince Lee, Tim McLean case that doctors said right from the very beginning that he has a very treatable form of schizophrenia, that with proper medical intervention and some time, it's very likely that he could be rehabilitated to the point that they would trust him to return to the community and not see him as a risk to society. Well, of course, that offends the McLean family, and again, I, I don't blame them for that because they're saying, well, regardless of whether he's mentally ill or not, he, he took our loved one away. Yeah. Uh, and, and he should not have the kind of luxuries and freedoms that our son does not. And that's where I guess this issue gets a little cloudy because what the McLean family is essentially advocating for is punishment, is justice. Well, our system right now in Canada is built on the principle that you're not punished. There is no so-called justice when you are found not criminally responsible. So this would require a massive overhaul of the system. And, you know, there might be the political will. I suspect there'd be the public will to bring a law like this into place. I'm just not sure if, if it's going to happen. Uh, I don't believe it will, not in the near future. Um, but I've been wrong before, and who knows where this will end up. Well, it'll be interesting. Uh, Mike McIntyre is here. You can check out his webpage at uh, mikeoncrime.com. Uh, you know, we're all about consequences in something like this. And, and uh, of course, like you say with Vince Lee, uh, when you see this and uh, his treatable form of schizophrenia uh, and being able to, and I think he's uh, getting escorts uh, or a, more freedom every day, so to speak, uh, the family, you can't blame them even in Canada with our 
as some will say, weak uh, penalty for for murder uh, as far as uh, life imprisonment goes. Why should this guy be able to get back in society after two years, five years, whatever, where others can't? Sure, and although it's interesting you bring that point up because... um there are examples, uh, and our, our justice system, when you're convicted of, of murder, uh, and of course everybody in Canada is eligible for parole, we don't have a system like the U.S. where uh, you can lock someone up and literally throw away the key and never give them another chance uh, at, uh, at freedom. Uh, in Canada, you'll always have that chance, and in fact, most murderers do get out eventually. But when you're found not criminally responsible, there are probably more examples, Dana, of people that are uh, institutionalized longer right. than you are for murder. Now, Vince Lee may, may end up ultimately being an exception to the rule, and I think, you know, because the Lee Greyhound case was so... Uh, extraordinary, so unbelievable, that gets a lot of the headlines. But when you boil it down, uh, there are a lot of people that are languishing in a mental health facility with absolutely no shot at ever being released. They'll die in that hospital. Uh, Meanwhile, had they been convicted of a crime, they would have been out ages ago. So I think it can work both ways, but certainly the facts of this case are so unique uh, and, and, you know, I suppose that's what this is going to maybe ultimately come down to is um, are you going to create a new law based on one extraordinary case that may be so different than, than the norm? Do you change an entire law for that? Uh, and, and that's where I think this may ultimately come to a head. What about the mental health system itself? Uh, I, I know you can't protect, you know, Big Brother is out there enough as it is. And uh, protecting the public, uh, whether you're on a Greyhound bus or an airplane or shopping in a mall or, or at a hockey rink, whatever. Uh, but is the mental health system itself partially responsible for this, for allowing a Vince Lee um, to to be uh, capable of committing something like this? Or is it just something that uh, if he's not taking his medication, there's not much anybody can do? No, you've hit the nail on the head. Absolutely, the mental health system is to blame, um, and not just the mental health system, the court system as well. There are uh, cases upon cases uh, of people who have fallen through the cracks of both systems, mental health and criminal justice. A failure to recognize uh, a person who's in need of intervention at an early stage, and even when you make that recognition, a failure to actually provide those services. Um, and, and we hear all the time people who are mentally ill who are falling through the cracks, and it's only when it's far too late, when they've hit that, that breaking point a la Vince Lee, that everybody sort of, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, looks back and says, geez, if only we had done this and this and this. Well, sadly, there are too, far too many examples of those cases, and they will continue to pile up. In fact, uh, um, there have been a growing number of judges who have voiced concerns in court, uh, certainly in my jurisdiction where I cover, about the failure of mental health services to get these people the help they need. And there are people right now, I guarantee you, people who are languishing in custody, who are not properly being diagnosed, and who are, who are going to be turned back out onto the streets, perhaps even more dangerous than when they first went in. And they're time bombs, absolute time bombs that, that are waiting to go off. 
with nobody really doing anything to stop them. And, uh, you know, I think there's enough blame to go around here, but uh, there is a, a massive failure on behalf of many parties. Yeah, for sure. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, speaking of cruises, uh, you are, are going to escape this 40 below weather that you and I are <laughs> suffering from here pretty quick. Tell us about that. Yeah, this uh, this will be the seventh year, actually. My wife and I uh, have the honor of hosting a, a group every year. We take with us uh, uh, part of my radio show that I do. Uh, we promote it and get to meet great folks from uh, all over Canada who, who sign up and come with us. And this year is going to be just spectacular. We're actually going on the world's largest cruise ship. Uh, it's called the Oasis of the Seas. It's a Royal Caribbean ship holds, and this this is going to be hard for some people to comprehend, 6,000 passengers Jeez. and 3,500 crew. We're talking almost 10,000 people on a ship that is over three football fields long. Among the amenities on the ship are an ice skating rink, a miniature golf course, zip lining, an outdoor water show, uh, seven distinct neighborhoods, including Central Park that they've replicated uh, with <laughs> thousands of living trees and plants and shrubs. Uh, it, I, I can't wait to set my eyes on this. Uh, many people may have seen, I think, the History Channel. They've been running a documentary on the building of this mega ship right. and its inaugural uh, voyage, and uh, I can't wait to set foot on it. It's going to be quite the experience. Well, it sounds great. See if you can get them to take a detour down the Sewers River, and I'll wave at you as yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the cruise industry, because of this bizarre incident uh, with this, this captain and... Uh, you know, the, the, the hitting the rocks, and uh, apparently because the head chef wanted to wave to his family yeah. who lived on this uh, this Italian island, yeah. uh, and, and look at the damage that's been done now, I think seven confirmed dead, and yeah. something like 29 missing, uh, the boat out of service, which they say may... may end up being over a hundred million dollars in lost revenue the stock price tanking uh and the criminal matter i mean it is just it's one of the craziest criminal stories that i've seen in some time yeah it's mind-boggling for sure mike mcintyre always a pleasure have a great trip my friend thank you take care okay bye-bye bye-bye Okay, that's uh, Mike McIntyre from the Crime and Punishment radio show. Uh, check out his webpage, MikeOnCrime.com. Pick up his new book. And uh, don't forget about Tim's Law. Uh, I do disagree with Mike on one part. It's more than just the Vince Lee case. There are many cases in Canada as far as uh, not being criminally responsible. And certainly the government needs to take a look at that. And, and uh, we the people need to take a look at the government and remind them about these cases uh, because the McLean family or the whatever family should not have to go through what they've been going through. And uh, the Vince Lees of the world should get the help uh, that they need. But again, we're all about consequences here. Uh, punishment, like Mike's uh, radio show is called Crime and Punishment. And um, I, I just don't see it. So make sure and go to Tim's Law. Dot ca. So I hope you uh, enjoyed the show. Uh, thanks to all my guests, uh, Blink from Blink on Crime, a tireless work, her and her team, and uh, the Kessie family. Uh, Drew wasn't able to come on tonight. I can understand it. Uh, they've, they're beat. Uh, everything that's been going on, I'll be in touch with Drew. I've known him for a number of years now, and uh, hopefully the answers will come to his family and all families of uh, missing loved ones. Uh, and they can get the answers that they truly deserve, and justice uh, will be served. Uh, we'll see you again real soon here on the Dana Pretzer Show. Good night. 
You've been listening to the Dana Pretzer Show on Scared Monkeys Radio. We invite you to discuss tonight's program with other listeners by joining us at scaredmonkeysradio.com where you'll find program archives, links to tonight's guest websites, and further information regarding tonight's topics. Scared Monkeys Radio is a production of scaredmonkeys.com. Thanks for listening.